Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I regularly sing in multiple part harmonies with my reindeer friends, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a mere merry man living a simple rural life and grumbling about taxes as we watch through 58 films and counting. Our very own sharpshooter with a socialist streak is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you doing? When did you last steal from the rich and give to the poor? Don't ask questions like that. I can't. <laughs> I, I played the fifth. I can't incriminate myself on podcast on air. No, I'm. I'm okay. I'm okay, Ben. I'm fine. I'm enjoying all all the fruits, both bitter and sweet, of the start of the academic year right now. So, oh, so you're rolling in it and being pinned down by the tax man right now. <laughs> I'm not talking about my taxes on a podcast. <laughs> Well, the thing that I've learned from this film that we're talking about today and from The Phantom Menace is that the best way into an adventure story is talking about tax. That is how all the greatest songs oh, man, It's very tax-heavy, isn't it? It's a very tax-heavy film. Yeah, every couple of minutes of Robin Hood, they remind you that this is all about taxes, man. But, okay, that's enough about taxes from us, because this whole episode's going to be about taxes, just as this film is. But you are not the only Sam on this week's episode. Things are about to get confusing, because we have a second Sam. This one's a happy-go-lucky guy who's here to join us in our fight back against the evil Sheriff of Nottingham and Prince John, all wrapped up in less than an hour and a half. Very on brand for him. Welcome to Disneyversity, cinema industry guru and the man behind the 90 minutes or less Film Fest podcast, Mr. Sam Clements. Hello. Hello. Thank you for uh, allowing me into class today. I don't remember going through uh, clearing, but here we are. <laughs> Everybody gets an automatic enrollment. It's an unofficial thing, you know. Everybody's part of Disneyversity and, until we boot them out. It's just part of the aforementioned socialist project of <laughs> the podcast. It's a, it's a free university no tuition fees and paid for by taxes that's good that's where the taxation comes in i see precisely exactly. all comes back to taxes thank you for joining us it's lovely to have you on and obviously we gave you a film less than 90 minutes which is basically any disney movie especially all the ones we've watched so far maybe fantasia aside these are all pretty short films but you love a, a sub 90 minute movie i absolutely do and and uh, when we started the 90 minutes or less film fest podcast a celebration of under 90 minute films i was thinking if nobody knows what films to choose, because on our show, uh, a guest brings, uh, I guess, like a bit like a study group, they'll bring an under 90 minute film onto the show for us to talk about. Uh, we've always got Disney. Every Disney film I can remember is 90 minutes or less. So, uh, so yeah, my backup plan was always, at least we've got Disney. If a guest is totally stuck, 
at, you know, there's like 50 odd films I could send to them to choose from. And a couple of people have gone down the Disney route, but not as many as I as I would hope or like. So when I when I saw the Disney Versity podcast, I was like, ah, I don't need to worry. These guys have got Disney covered. <laughs> I'll definitely defer to their expertise. And um, we have a shared guest in common. Obviously, we had Helen O'Hara on uh, in our last run of episodes for The Sword and the Stone. She came on for Sleeping Beauty for 90 Minute Film Fest. Yes, it's, I, I do love it when a guest picks a Disney film because A, I've probably seen it before, which is always nice. So I feel like I'm a little bit ahead of them on my homework. But yeah, Helen picked an absolute banger. So it was nice to hear her on Disneyversity also uh, share the expertise. And, uh, you know, our podcast is about under 90 minute films. We try and keep the runtime super short, around 30 minutes or so. But it's nice on Disneyversity. There's a little bit more room uh, to go under the skin of the film. So I sort of enjoyed, you know, you guys going a bit deeper uh, than we could. We Helen. Yeah, we struggle to go under 90 minutes on this podcast. <laughs> we try and keep it tight and then there's usually all kinds of mad stuff to talk about. Are you comfortable being on a podcast that may be an hour and a half, maybe maybe over the 90 minute mark? I got a little bead of sweat on my uh, my, my brow when you said that. So like, oh, I didn't, <laughs> didn't check the small print on this. Uh, but no, I think when we're talking about Disney, if you can talk about a Disney film for longer than the film is, that's probably a good sign. Yeah, today's films are beautiful, 83 minutes long. Fantastic runtime there. Yeah, they all get in get out they they pack in some japes couple of songs and then we're done wrapping up so so let's talk disney what's your history with disney movies what are the disney films that you grew up on what were the ones that you watched as a kid i think when i grew up i was i grew up in the 90s when which was a golden age of kids television so i think the first disney thing i saw was probably Saturday morning cartoons, probably the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh, probably saw the Aladdin television series before I actually saw Aladdin the movie. And that probably happened a few times. Little Mermaid, I definitely saw that series before I saw the film. Don't know why. My dad's a big film guy, but he likes films for him. He didn't really buy films for us, which makes him sound like not a good dad, but that's not true. He was lovely. But yeah, we would watch all of the Saturday morning cartoon versions of the films. And then when I was a little bit older, then I would actually realize, oh, wait, minute there's a movie of the little mermaid and there's a movie of aladdin and and would watch those but the first disney video i remember owning was mickey and the beanstalk oh yeah sam you probably know more about this than me Uh, Mickey and the Beanstalk is part of the package film Fun and Fancy Free and it's been reissued as kind of a solo joint on video a few times to rake in the money there for something that's what, like 30 minutes long? I mean, perfect for the the 90 minutes or less film festival. You could watch three Mickey and the Beanstalks in that time. (laughs) I think weirdly on that VHS it was packaged with an episode of The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh rather than any of the other package films on that particular release. (laughs) The thing that I'm really intrigued with Mickey and the Beanstalk, which, as you say, was released on VHS here, so I don't think, well, Fun and Fancy Free wasn't particularly well available when we were growing up, but Mickey and the Beanstalk was on VHS. But the Mickey and the Beanstalk segment of Fun and Fancy Free concludes with the animated giants in Hollywood crashing the creepy puppet party, ripping the roof (laughs) off the house. So on VHS, did it still end that way? Were people sitting down to watch Mickey and the Beanstalk and going like, why does this end with a giant in Hollywood and all of these puppets in a house? And how how does it end on VHS? We need to find this out. I need to dig out. I probably still have the VHS tape. Unfortunately, VHS players are very hard to come by. Yeah, it? that feels like something I should know. Whether any of the puppet material is retained in the in the video standalone version of that, because they interject in in the in the short as well. Like they interject in the narration and stuff. So it feels like you would need to replace them with something 
to put that on. If you're going to take them out, you would need to replace them with something. I don't know. I need to check that out. Uh, but I think the first Disney film proper that I had was The Jungle Book, which uh, shares some DNA with today's film. <laughs> but uh, that was the one I had on rotation. And I think that was the only official VHS we had. We had lots taped off the telly. Nice. And it's, it's fun to talk about the, the breakfast cartoons. That hasn't really come up much so far. We talked about Tailspin when we did the Jungle Book episode. Oh, I love Tailspin. I mean, like if it was on dig it or whatever the the I, channel free sort of disney affiliated kids tv uh series was then um i would watch it tailspin had that amazing theme song and uh it was quite dark which i quite liked also the kid would glide on a boomerang outside the back of a twin prop plane wild <laughs> so when you watched the jungle book were you like what is baloo doing here in the jungle where are his clothes where's his plane <laughs> I was very confused, actually. Yeah, it was odd. I was like, oh, are all of the Disney cartoons going to be like repurposing characters like this? Repurposing characters from Tailspin. <laughs> um, is it, is it going to be explained at all that um, these are the ancestors of Jungle Book? Nope. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to it in the uh, Lion King episode. But for me, it was the Timon and Pumbaa cartoons that I remember being on, on heavy rotation on Saturday morning TV. You know, talking about this is just filling me with absolute dread because there is a run of like 10 films in the 1990s where every single one of them has like a very long multi-season, 100 episode long animated series. And I need to figure out what I'm going to do when faced with that for the podcast. <laughs> You know what to do. You've got to watch every episode, my friend. That is the dedication that we expect from from this very expensive hall of learning. Uh, people are putting their taxes into this, Sam. You've got to you got to put the work in. You know. So you grew up on those cartoons, and and the Jungle Book was your first proper Disney movie. But what are the Disney films that you love now? You you work in the film industry and in the cinema industry do you follow present day disney stuff what are the films that you gravitate towards these days i'm always attracted to disney films i'm a big film nerd and and i really you know in my own time tracked down the classic disney films and and, and watched them i had all the dvds when i was old enough to buy my own dvds and and as formats keep changing i seem to keep upgrading the library there so at work when i'm i'm on you know the forefront of uh, new cinema releases and, and and talking to distributors about how we can support their movies in our cinemas i'm always the first person to put my hand up when it's the disney meeting or the disney phone call uh, about what's coming up and sure i want to talk about the big franchises like marvel and star wars and and all of the you know live action stuff they've got but if they've got an animation i will be absolutely present in that meeting and kind of going above and beyond uh, to see what we can do together because it's fun to work on things you enjoy right so yeah during my time in my day job uh, i've got to work with disney on on things like uh, zootropolis and frozen and uh, wreck it ralph and uh, and bolt way back when uh, when when that came out i'm front of the line basically and as much as i am dedicated to my job I just want to see the film first. I want to be the first person in the company to see the movie uh, and just have that little, that small bragging right. That's what it's all about. I mean, and we have Encanto coming up. It feels like, obviously, Raya and the Last Dragon is fresh in the memory. Uh, as of recording, we just got a fresh Encanto trailer, which I can't wait. I mean, it's Disney. It's the directors of Zootropolis slash Zootopia. I can never remember which title is which in which country. And it's Lin-Manuel Miranda songs. Oh my God, what a combo. I'm stoked. And I'm really glad, you know, uh, the cinemas have been so affected uh, over the last 18 months, as, as so many have. Um, it's nice that Disney have still kept some of their films for cinema release. Uh, I was disappointed not to have seen Raya and the Last Dragon because it ruined my streak of, of seeing Disney films at the cinema, uh, all the new releases. And I still haven't 
a track down a screening of Raya and the Last Dragon at a cinema, but uh, I will definitely be there for Encanto. So it's been quite a while since you picked this film. We hit you up ages ago saying, what film do you want to come on for? And straight away you were like, I want to do Robin Hood. What is it about Robin Hood that made you want to come on for this episode? Aside from the excellent runtime, let's just take a moment <laughs> to really celebrate 83 minutes. Oh, beautiful. That's uh, just right. Leaves you wanting more. <laughs> and that's with credits. The credits on these are short in that they don't list the, the caterers and the gaffers and the, the first aid. But in Robin Hood, they really do make a feature of the credits, which I enjoy. And they work it into the film, sort of, in a way. <laughs> Um, but Robin Hood, I think, was one that we definitely taped off the television, um, and we had lots of adverts in between for very 90s products like Nintendo Scope and uh, the Cadbury Bunny, but I, I would just watch it a lot, and I'm not sure why I picked Robin Hood more so than the others. I don't remember really liking Robin Hood outside of the Disney film, the true story of, of Robin Hood here. Later in life, I've learned to enjoy the Kevin Costner uh, Robin Hood film, but I'm not like a Robin Hood head. You know, I'm not a, not a Robin stan uh, here. I, I think I just thought the film was really fun and I love the songs. Those definitely made me come back more and more and more. And I watched these films so much as a kid and then I stopped for a little bit. I got really serious, started watching Quentin Tarantino films and all that sort of business. And then a couple of years later, maybe when I was at university, I was a bit hungover one day and uh, I didn't know what to watch. And I saw my DVD of Robin Hood and Robin Hood with a hangover. And we're at university, guys. This is relevant now. It's so good. It's the perfect hangover film. And since that day, I've sort of made it my New Year's Day movie because we do often go out, have a couple of beverages. And New Year's Day tradition now is waking up a little bit late, very hungover, watching Robin Hood, and and by the time the film ends, your head will be soothed. I guarantee the listeners. That is a wonderful thing. Maybe we'll have to inherit this tradition, Sam. Maybe we'll outright steal steal from the riches of Sam Clements <laughs> and give to our poor and cultured selves to make this a New Year's Day movie. That's a lovely thing. <laughs> it's nice to have a New Year's Day movie, certainly. So you're, you're not a Robin Hood head, Sam. I don't think I've seen a single live-action Robin Hood anything. I'm not a Robin Hood expert by any stretch. I mean, I, I know enough about the legends, a bit like with King Arthur, I've always been very interested in the history of, of, of this folklore, but I don't think I've ever seen, I've not seen Prince of Thieves, I've not even seen Men in Tights, I've not seen the BBC thing that they did, and I was wondering, Ben, you're from Nottingham, do you have more of a grounding in, in the whole Robin Hood of it all than, than I do? Um, a bit. <laughs> so this, yeah, this is the story of my hometown. This is this is my local folktale. I grew up in Nottingham. Yeah, I watched the BBC series. This is the sort of tea time Doctor Who adjacent Robin Hood series, which I enjoyed. I watched a couple of series of that. Otherwise, I, I think I did see Prince of Thieves at some point. I don't know it particularly well. Um, I didn't see Men in Tights. Do you know what I did see? I saw the recent Taron Egerton Robin Hood movie, which, right, <laughs> it's not a great film, but I went into it expecting it to be possibly one of the worst things I've ever seen because truly the trailers for it were absolutely diabolically bad. I thought it was quite fun. It moved so fast that there was no time to stop and think whether it was bad or not. <laughs> it was a weird take on the material. There were, there were guns and like weird action sequences. It was made by the Peaky Blinders guy and they tried to like zhuzh up Robin Hood. I think my feeling on Robin Hood is that 
it's a really great story that we seem incapable of just telling in a straight up way the thing i appreciated about the bbc series that i used to watch was that i think it presented a fairly straight take on robin hood apart from the fact that his outfit looked a little bit like top man rather than straight up medieval garb but it seems like one of these really classic folk tales that whenever somebody does it they're like oh we need to do a take on robin hood rather than just doing robin hood so I like this story. I have a lot of affection for this story. There's a little Robin Hood statue in Nottingham by the castle, which doesn't look like the castle in this. I was very disappointed. I have notes on the Nottinghamness of this movie. But I'm not a massive Robin Hood head either. I don't know the Errol Flynn films. I know people love those, but I, I don't know if there is like a, a definitive take on this story. I'm not sure that this Disney film is it, as, as much fun as it is. Similar to what we were saying about King Arthur then when we were talking to Helen about it, like where is the definitive cinematic version of this story? I think for a lot of people it would be the Errol Flynn version. Certainly when Disney was making this movie it would have been the Errol Flynn version. That would have been the one that loomed large for decades on cinematic adaptations of the story. Have you seen that one, Sam? The Errol Flynn film is fantastic and it's very close to being 90 minutes long, I think. So obviously extra points there. It's uh, But Robin Hood, in, in terms of cinema... You know, there's been tens and tens and tens of uh, sort of American adaptations, probably more if you throw in all of the sort of world cinema versions of it. Robin Hood would have been a big silent film character because like Disney for silent cinema, you would often adapt uh, folk tales or existing stage plays or musicals. And Robin Hood would have been in the mix there as well as a popular character. Uh, so, yeah, there would be a lot of like Robin Hood weight uh, behind this when they were making the film, when they were talking about doing doing a Robin Hood adaptation, which I'm sure has been talked about at Disney for a very long time before we get to the 70s for this particular one uh, there. The Errol Flynn one is good. The Kevin Costner one is the definitive in my eyes, though. That's the one with Alan Rickman cancelling Christmas, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> It's a joy. It's one of my favourite films of all time, and and I would recommend it as further reading for uh, for yourselves and for the listeners. If you buy the Blu-ray or if you have YouTube, there's an excellent making of documentary, which is a TV special at the time that came out in 1991, hosted by Pierce Brosnan, pre-Bond Pierce Brosnan, doing basically a DVD special feature, and he is going full partridge in this special feature. It's incredible. It's one that is one of my most favorite things that exists the making of robin hood kevin costner's robin hood you're about to derail this podcast because all i want to do right now is go and watch that pierce brosnan introducing robin hood special feature thing but before we get distracted that is enough from us we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin so this time after getting down with the parisian toe-tapping felines of the aristocats we're off to my hometown of Nottingham for a spot of morally sanctioned robbery with 1973's Robin Hood. So we've been discussing the folktale of Robin Hood is fairly well known. He steals from the rich, he gives to the poor. But Sam, what is the plot of Disney's take on Robin Hood? For people who haven't revisited recently, give us a little plot summary. King Richard is away on a crusade. And his greedy brother, Prince John, is on the throne and hiking up taxes. Yay! On the poor. Boo. So Robin Hood decides to help out by robbing the rich, as he does, famously, while dodging traps set by the Sheriff of Nottingham. Eventually, the prince is defeated, King Richard returns, and Robin wins the hand of the fair maid Marion. 
something this has in common with most of Riderman's Disney films, not a very plotty one, I wouldn't have said. Yeah, this is a kind of meandering, slightly strangely constructed film. We'll, we'll get into that slightly further down the line. But I want to talk about how, how this film came about, which Sam Clements was... A, Sam C. What are we going to call you for this episode, Sam? Well, you, you can call me Doc, if you want. <laughs> right, it feels like you've been sitting on this for like 20 episodes. He's like, at some point, I want him to start calling me Doc instead of Sam. And you saw your chance and you jumped on it. <laughs> Okay, we'll call you Doc this week, and and Sam, you get to be this week's actual Sam. Um, so as Sam alluded to, there was probably a long history here. So let's let's start with it's three years since the Aristocats, which is a reasonable amount of time. Were things slowing down a bit at the studio? What was the delay in getting this one off the ground? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's not a massive delay by Disney standards. There was a three-year gap between. Aristocats and Jungle Book. I'm just seeing if I've got my maths right here. I think the longest they've had was five years between Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty. This is just off the top of my head. Don't shoot me if it's wrong. So this wasn't crazy, but they are very much kind of doing one film at a time during this period. There's not... I mean, there will be a little bit of overlap in the production, but there's not as much overlap as there used to be during the heyday of, of the Walt era where multiple films were going into production or in development at the same time and animators were working on different films at different times, etc. Yeah, I mean, you know, Aristocats was a hit, Jungle Boot was a hit, like, Walt's death was a big blow, but they are on a little bit of a streak at the minute. So I'm intrigued of when this film initially came about, right? Because a British folk story, it seems like an obvious Disney pull in terms of source material. It's, it's very much in keeping with what Disney's drawn from this entire time. But did this originate from the, the sort of Walt Disney era, or was this a Willy Ritherman pull? Well, Disney did make a Robin Hood movie. Walt Disney made a Robin Hood movie in 1952. They made a live-action version. It was one of their first wave of live-action movies. It was the follow-up to Treasure Island, I believe, or very close to Treasure Island, which was the first all-live-action film. So Disney had already kind of dabbled in those waters a little bit, but... The roots of this particular Robin Hood are fairly long and winding and have nothing at all (laughs) to do with that and don't really have anything to do with Robin Hood. So this version of the character, as in the Fox version of the character, is as much based on Robin Hood as he is based on the French folk hero Renard the Fox. Renard the Fox is one of the kind of central figures of medieval Western European folklore, and his roots kind of go all the way back to Aesop's fables. He's this trickster archetype. He's almost like a low-key figure who just goes around messing with people. And you can see Renard's DNA in all sorts of like trickster, anthropomorphized fox characters, from Fantastic Mr. Fox to beat Rick Potter's Mr. Todd, I believe he's called. I saw him in Peter Rabbit 2, but months ago. Um, <laughs> so, Renard the Fox is a hugely influential figure, and he had a very direct impact on the development of this film, because one of the many contenders for the follow-up film to Snow White, all the way back in 1937, was Renard the Fox. This was pitched to Disney, along with other ideas like Bambi and Pinocchio and Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, all of that, and made it into... A version of development. There was concept art, there were storyboards for this movie, which we can go back and look at. But Walt decided against it because he thought Renard would make an unlikable hero. Renard the Fox, especially in the kind of 
medieval French uh, texts that have been written down and translated is a horrible, horrible guy. Okay, he is he is the worst. I've written down the worst thing that he does, and I'm not sure whether I should read it out. Okay, I'm going to read this out, and you can delete it or partially delete it as you see fit then. (laughs) So the villain of the Renard story is his antagonist, his opponent is a wolf, and he's always playing tricks on this wolf. And the worst trick that he pulls, which kind of instigates the main action of the story, is he breaks into the wolf's house, assaults his wife, and blinds his children by urinating in their eyes. So... Let's talk about definitions of mischief, Sam. <laughs> this seems wildly outside the bounds of what you would call mischief. Yeah, not not so much trickster archetype as villain, villain, villain. evil, vile criminal. Um, and indeed, he spends the rest of the story on trial. And the king, who by the way, rightly is a, so, the king, who by the way is a lion, sends all of his little henchmen off to get Renard. And many of these characters bear strong resemblances to what we would end up with in Robin Hood. Walt did not like this version of Renard. I wonder why. Yeah. (laughs) So he actually said the words, this story needs a Robin Hood angle. He said if this character is going to be the hero, he needs to have some kind of moral edge to him. Maybe he's tricking the rich to amuse the poor or something, right? He needs a Robin Hood angle. They never came up with that angle and he was abandoned. Incidentally... One of the first ever animated features, which predates even Snow White, is a fantastic French stop-motion film by a guy called Ladislav Sterovich, which is well under 90 minutes, Sam, and which is called The Tale of Renard or The Tale of the Fox. And that is just great. Check that out. I'm pretty sure it's all on YouTube if you want to have a look at that. So, Disney are not making Renard. In Good. the... <laughs> Good, yeah. <laughs> right? So, in the Correct, 1960s... Cool. We already talked about this on our Sword of the Stone episode. They were developing what was looking to be, what was shaping up to be a really excellent innovative animated feature based on the character of Chanticleer the rooster, whose crow he believes is what makes the sun rise. So Chanticleer is part of the... <laughs> the Renardverse? Yeah, the Renardverse. <laughs> the RLU, the Renard Literary Universe, okay? Wow. So he's part of the extended supporting cast of Renard, and Renard was brought back, as were some of these old concept drawings, and like ideas and costumes and settings and everything, and Renard was going to be the villain where he belongs in the Chanticleer movie. Unfortunately, the kibosh was put on that by another villain, enemy of the show, Bill Pete, as we all know. <laughs> um, he bewitched Walt with Sword in the Stone, and the Chanticleer film was not to be. So Renard is again back on the no pile. But during the production of the Aristocats, Ken Anderson the guy who was the production designer on Dalmatians, on Sword in the Stone, and Aristocats, a really influential, innovative guy at Disney who came up with the kind of scratchy Xerox look for these recent films. He pitched Robin Hood as the next film, and he resurrected a lot of these designs from these failed Renard projects to inform this anthropomorphized animal version of Robin Hood. And Designs in particular seem to be very heavily influenced by a 1945 edition of the Renard stories with illustrations by a guy called Keith Ward. And there are characters and costumes in this picture book which are almost identical to what we see in Disney's Robin Hood. So this character, this version of the Robin Hood character, shares so much DNA with Renard and 
is really Disney's version of a Renard film resurrected after multiple failed attempts. That's such an interesting combination of things. I never knew it went that deep, that it wasn't just, hey, what if we did Robin Hood with animals, which seems like an obvious Disney thing to do. So the fact that the rooster is a prominent part of this is the narrator. Is that a Chanticleer reference? Is that for all the Chanticleer heads? Exactly. So there's a wolf, i.e. the Sheriff of Nottingham. There's a bear, i.e. Little John. There is a king who is a lion and the king's wife in Renard, obviously a lioness, inspired the design of the mainless Prince John in this movie as well. So it goes it goes really deep. Just occurred to me, Sam, when you said a king that's a lion, that's a good idea. Write that down. Someone should do something with that. <laughs> okay, we'll note that for later. Very good. Excellent. So the story doesn't quite end there though, Ben. Okay. Because this is one of the greatest like roads to production that a Disney film's gone through, by the way. The, the twists and the turns, my friends. So, Ken Anderson's original idea was not just Robin Hood with animals inspired by Renard. He also wanted to set it, at least for a time, in the Deep South, right? Set in a version of the world that they created for the other big anthropomorphic animal movie, Song of the South, okay? So it was going to be not like a literal spin-off of Song of the South, but set in that kind of world. And by the 60s, this was already clearly a bad idea, right? In the middle of the civil rights movement, this movie has already been reevaluated. I mean, people hated it when it came out, you know? Black critics and progressives hated it when it came out. But it's now really starting to snowball into this this kind of very dark reputation that this movie has. So Ritherman said, we're not doing that, we can't do that. But the DNA of that idea is still in the movie because, as we'll come to talk about, so much of this movie is inspired by western movies and by western and southern american culture and music and everything so all of these little avenues that it went down they all lend something to the finished film which is perhaps why it's so semiotically rich one might say but one might also say kind of cluttered and unfocused So as well as being a hodgepodge of ideas and influences and all these other Disney projects that never quite made it to the light of day This film also is a bit of a hodgepodge of films that did see the light of day in Disney because this is famously a film that has lots of bits of of reuse of animation. This is something that you see those videos online or those BuzzFeed articles that are like, did you know this character movement is the same as that character movement? We've already encountered it a couple of times. I think in The Jungle Book it came up that certain bits had been reused from earlier Disney films, but this feels like one of the prime candidates of Disney films that reused existing bits of animation. Yeah, one of the main offenders, you might say, if you think it's a bad thing. It's it's recycling, isn't it? It's upcycling, it's very sustainable, a good message for the kids. (laughs) But when when these videos come out online, there's a lot of comments like, oh, my childhood has been ruined. Like this that's ruined my opinion of the movie that these people were were so lazy or so cheap as to recycle animation and that seems a little harsh I always think. Yeah because it came up before in the Jungle Book the chase with the with the monkeys and and King Louis's palace was a sort of a redo of the Toad Hall set piece from Ichabod and Mr Toad which it seemed like that's still a crazy amount of work to take an existing sequence and do it with different animals in a different context I, that doesn't seem lazy to me that seems like almost more work than just designing a new sequence. So that's the thing according to any animator that you talk about who worked on these movies it was not cheaper and it was not quicker, right? You've still got to draw everything from scratch. You've still got to draw all over the top for a new cell. 
But on top of that, you've then got to warp whatever is in the original into whatever you want it to be. So, for example, well, let's go through them. In this film, we've got pretty much the entire Phony King of England dance sequence is taken from other dance sequences from various movies. You've got... um, the monkey sequence in the jungle book you've got everybody wants to be a cat from aristocats is in there and you've got the hootenanny sequence from snow white right so there's bits in this movie where what is being traced is snow white dancing with two dwarfs one on top of the other and what we end up with is maid marion dancing with an unusually long dog with this like very (laughs) wobbly kind of torso right and it's like what it's like two dwarfs in a dog costume is what it looks like right it's bizarre and it must have been tricky to do to accomplish we've also got some of the elephant material from the jungle book is reused here for some of them prince john's troops a bit more straightforward and there's a chase at the tournament in and out of tents which is taken from the mayor's chase in alice in wonderland so there's quite a lot of it also the film reuses its own scenes a lot we see it in the opening titles and with the finale spoilers for the finale of the film in the opening titles and you see it often in saturday morning cartoons where it's it's sort of cost cutting but they use it throughout the film that exercise of just reusing a shot to to move the story along within the context of this own film i mean is that what it is sam is it a oh sorry doc is it a cost cutting measure is it supposed to be saving the studio money why were they doing that so there's basically two options okay and both of them basically end up with woolly ritherman so either ritherman genuinely thought this was quicker and cheaper despite what all the animators have said and he was just oblivious to how long it actually took to trace these things or this was just something he liked to do as a filmmaker and it's part of the authorial stamp that he would put on these movies, right? The idea that he was paying homage to these older movies or perhaps trying to like intertextually activate people's memories of those movies. Um, so it's like this dance sequence is actually this sophisticated bricolage of references to all the Disney movies and it's trying to evoke our sense of joy from those older dance sequences and that's obviously a lot more charitable but it does make a certain amount of sense when you think about how cost ineffective the process actually was. Yeah, I mean I think it's really interesting, I don't think it seems lazy I think it's just an interesting part of the history of these films but we have discussed a lot of the background of Robin Hood and we haven't started probably discussing the film yet so should we go into it? Yes, please. Oodalali. Oodalali, oodalali, <laughs> golly, what a pod. Let's do this thing. <laughs> As we discussed then, this take on Robin Hood is a mix of all kinds of influences, and now knowing that that is the case, it kind of makes sense of the opening of the film more, because in classic Disney style, we have a Robin Hood book. We go into the book. And I was watching this thinking, the people in the pictures in the book are are humans, they're not animals, what's going on? And then this rooster pops up and is like, by the way, we've got our own version of this story and you're going to hear that. It's a book within a book with a rooster. (laughs) This is the animal version, baby. And immediately this rooster is whistling a tune. It's the catchiest thing in the world, and we're straight into one of the things that people love about this film, which is the songs. We hit it off with just an insanely catchy whistling number. Yeah. Wait, you're going to sing it? You're not going to whistle it? I can't whistle, unfortunately. 
That was beautiful. Wow. I second guess myself. You both looked stunned. <laughs> really I don't know if you were like, no, I was stunned at the talent. <laughs> uh, we should point out that that was also used later as the hamster song. Oh, the hamster dance. A sped up techno version of, of that whistling uh, was reused in the 90s. <laughs> I believe the reuse of that was a uh, an homage to Woolly Rytherman's reuse of pieces of animation through the history of Disney. <laughs> Well, it's also a football chant pertaining to former Sunderland striker Darren Bent, and and that goes like this. Darren Bent is fast as lightning. Darren Bent is red and white. When he gets the ball and scores a goal, it's effing dynamite. (laughs) I mean, it's a (laughs) multi-purpose song. (laughs) Possibly other football clubs have that song as well, but I don't know about other football clubs. It's a musical episode of The Pod for a very musical film. Yeah, I think that's a lovely way into this movie. What about you guys? I feel like the beginning of this film is pretty iconic. Like, it's weird. It's not consistent with previous Disney films at all. It's more like a television sitcom, because during this lovely piece of music, the characters are introduced to us. And my favorite bit of the film, I think, is that the characters are introduced with their name and then their animal. It's like Robin Hood. A fox. <laughs> Little John. A bear. And I love that they've done that detail. It reminds me of like the closing credits of Dad's Army when it's like so-and-so as Sergeant Mannering. And, uh, and, and yeah, very televisual. It's like the animals have been cast to play the characters, which obviously in a way they have, but it's a bit like, oh, who plays Little John in, in that new Robin Hood? Oh, it's, it's, it's Jamie Foxx. Oh, who plays Little John in that Robin Hood? Oh, it's a bear. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got this whole like country and western vibe already infused into the movie through the music. Uh, it's very relaxed. This opening, not just the whistle stop song, but the um, Oodle Alley song that immediately follows it. Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest. It's there's not usually this much singing, or maybe there, maybe is. there is. You know, but just before we move on to that song, though, in, in the opening title sequence, which is a very different sort of title sequence than we've seen in any other Disney movie so far, most of the time when the animal came up, right, when it was like Robin Hood, a fox, it's like, well, duh. The only one I was like, oh, was Friar Tuck is supposed to be a badger? He's like a weird, large badger with weird hair. Well, you see, Ben, he was originally supposed to be a pig, but they changed that because they didn't want to offend the Catholic Church. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Well, this wouldn't even be the first cartoon in which Friar Tuck was played by a pig because uh, there's a Looney Tunes cartoon called Robin Hood Daffy where Porky Pig plays Friar Tuck. But anyway, so what we kind of end up with is like... Maybe like a half badger, half pig creature. <laughs> I don't know if that would even help. He's he's an odd little chap, isn't he? He is. He's a he's a strange guy. He's got a good vibe, but I was like, I don't see badger when I look at that. Uh, the other thing I want to pick up from the title sequence is a name that popped up in the character animation roster, which is a certain Don Bluth. Is this the first time we've seen Don Bluth's name on a Disney movie? Okay, so Don Bluth is going to become very important later on because in the early 1980s, Don Bluth would lead an exodus of a lot of the top Disney animators and start his own studio specifically designed to rival Disney and to start making the kinds of movies that he believed Disney were no longer making and he ended up having huge hits with An American Tale and The Land Before Time. And... 
Rockadoodle, which was not a huge hit, but it was based on Chanticleer, which brings us back to Renard. So, very important guy for a lot of reasons is Don Bluth. This was, I believe, the first Disney film on which he received a screen credit. He did some kind of menial work on Sleep and Beauty, but this is, you know, now he is a real character animator and he's going to continue to contribute to The Rescuers and The Fox and the Hound and films like that down the road. We'll be talking about him a lot more on future episodes. Yeah, that name leapt out on me from the screen when I saw it pop up. We'll come back to Don Bluth, episodes down the line. Yeah, this opening double whammy of songs is just a wonderful thing. The whistling song into Oodle Alley just sets the tone because for me this is a disney like medieval folklore story but instead of all the pomp and circumstance of a princess movie of something like sleeping beauty or cinderella even it sets a really different tone it feels very laid back the whole rooster narration reminded me mostly of the big lebowski of the sam elliott character in the big lebowski especially with that deep south accent i think there's a real warmth to the film that begins right from this opening reel very friendly and it's uh it feels a little bit like a sitcom not just in terms of the titles but actually later on how the film is structured uh it does have a very episodic quality uh it's like binging a a robin hood animated box set or you know being stuck in front of the telly on a saturday morning which uh, maybe is why i like this film so much <laughs> yeah and you get this this really laid back like oh man it's robin hood and little john they're just running through the forest, guys, okay? Like, ooh, the lolly. And, and th- that sequence where they're kind of evading the sheriff is, is, again, so laid back. It's like they don't even really have to try. So the rooster, Alan Adele, for that is his name, is played by Roger Miller, who is a top country musician at the time, a fairly well-known guy. And he wrote most of the songs as well. So the songs that he's singing are songs that he wrote, and that's why they have this authentic country and western flavor to them and like i said before the whole film is infused with that i mean half the characters have southern or western accents the sheriff of nottingham for example he's he's a sheriff in the western sense you know the sense that most americans will be familiar with that word from from like western movies right there's a new sheriff in town i love the little touch that um in his opening narration alan adale calls robin hood a tall tale which is the same language that you always hear applied to western heroes and disney western heroes like picos bill and davy crockett and there's, there's all sorts of references to these things, like Davy Crockett has a gun called Old Betsy, and that's the name of Trigger's crossbow in this movie. And in the Disney Davy Crockett show, there's a whole song about Old Betsy and what a great gun it is. <laughs> so it's, the references go quite deep, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a strange mix of various Disney obsessions, like Old West mythologizing America and at the same time drawing from european folk stories it's a a curious mix apart from all the socialism it feels like a very walt (laughs) disney movie (laughs) and and speaking of the socialism then let's talk about our two main lads here so we've got robin hood and we've got little john this film doesn't particularly do the whole merry men thing there's not like a really established like specific gang it feels more Mm. like it's robin hood it's little john little john voiced by phil harris Again, doing his Phil Harris thing in a wonderful way. I, I love that in the opening sequence when they're doing their first robbery on Prince John and they're kind of swiping whatever they can. There's a pure piece of Phil Harris delivery when he's uh, looking at the wheels of the cart and he goes, Solid gold hubcaps. 
Every time he says something to do with solid gold, it just instantly gets me in that blue headspace. Ah, and then we're talking about just casting like the bear to play a little John, but what they've done is they've just cast Baloo to play a little John, and that's great. It's like what if Baloo was an actor? It's the same thing with Tailspin. It's like what if Baloo was an actor who we can just cast to play whatever role that we want? It makes me think one of the films that we could have just with with Baloo in there. Like what if in Beauty and the Beast, the Beast was just played by Baloo? How great would that? And we call it the Ballooniverse. Hey. <laughs> Maybe in the titles they should have said Little John, played by Baloo, rather than mm. a bear. <laughs> and already you get this mishmash of accents, don't you? Because Phil Harris is doing his American drawl sort of thing. Who's the guy who voiced Robin Hood, Sam? Brian Bedford. He was a English Shakespearean actor. He is too posh. This was one of my gripes, right? So you've got a posh British accent for Robin Hood. There was no Midlands twang. He should sound like he's straight out of a Shane Meadows movie or something. Come on. Well, it depends what Robin Hood you're talking about, because the earliest Robin Hood stories, he was a yeoman, which was kind of like a, a servant class person. But later versions, most notably, I think, Walter Scott's Ivanhoe novel, have implied that he was actually a nobleman who was kind of deliberately living the life of a pauper in the forest and running around like a bandit. He, he was someone who was of noble birth but wasn't happy with the regime, so he was rebelling in his own way. So maybe he was a bit of a posh guy. It could have been Sir Robert of Luxley. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted a bit of like Midlander accents in there, a bit of Midlander representation. This is our story, Sam. It needs to be told. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If, if they'd cast someone like that, in the Lampton Worm animated movie, adapting the most famous Sunderland legend, <laughs> I would have been livid. Oh, I love that no one's going to know what the Lampton Worm is, but you have no idea how much Sam, aka Doc, and I end up discussing the story of the Lampton Worm, which is a giant marauding monstrous worm that was slain by a uh, some kind of knight or something. It's a whole thing. Go and look it up. That should be a bonus episode. <laughs> we'll do an episode when Disney makes would, the Lampton Worm. Stay after worm class movie. for that. <laughs> One of the things that I like that it really sets up early on with this first heist sequence that continues through the film is that Robin Hood and Little John just love dressing up. They love putting on a disguise. Through various points in the film, we get various different get-ups. So we have, basically, they're doing drag. Fortune teller, traveller, drag. (laughs) In their first thing, we get Robin Hood dressing up as a stork later on in the film. I want a Halloween film with these guys dressing up uh, every year. I like that when he's dressing up, he puts a hat over his classic Robin Hood hat. Also, a couple of times in the film, he reveals, like, it is me. And he's wearing his his hat, which is perfectly formed, hasn't been squashed down. Uh, but it's very cartoony, which, which I do uh, enjoy. I do like at the very beginning of the sequence, just before the heist, Little John asks Robin Hood, it's like that Mitchell and Webb sketch, are we the bad guys? Because they're <laughs> yes. about to rob someone and it sort of explains their moral code, which I think is important if you're a young child, maybe, and you haven't seen Robin Hood or heard of Robin Hood before. You know, like, yes, they are robbing, which you've probably been told is bad, but they're doing it for good reason. And as a child, you won't understand all these constant conversations about tax. You don't know what taxes are. Yeah. You need to know that this money is something that they feel they are owed. Well, that's, I think, as a kid, the lesson that you come away with from this is that taxes are terrible. Like, if you don't really know anything about it, it's like, oh, taxes are a punishment that the greedy dole out to the poor, which is obviously only sometimes the case. But I feel like we can't really talk about Robin Hood without talking about the fox in the room, which is 
just how bloody sexy this fox is. <laughs> oh, God, right? here we go. It's got to be mentioned. It's got to be mentioned. It's got to be addressed. So many people talk about, like, oh, my first crush was Robin Hood, right? My partner's first crush was Robin Hood. And obviously, you can see the resemblance. <laughs> <laughs> Robin Hood is a sexy fox. And a lot of people are very attracted to this fox. Were you guys attracted to the fox? I'm just going to go ahead and say I wasn't, but I under I get why. Like, what do you think it is that makes this character appealing in that sense? It's the voice, isn't it? I mean, uh, he is a smooth talker. That posh English accent that he does have. I mean, it's very, it feels very sort of like 90s rom-com, Hugh Grant, Jude Law sort of level of, of swoon mm. uh, you get there. But I, I feel like he's, I mean, he's a great character, obviously, you know, rebelling and, and, and being so uh, helpful to, to the poor and, and basically saving the good people of Nottingham. But he's a smooth character. Yeah, I was talking to my girlfriend about it last night and she said that it was partly in the kind of facial animations in there as well. The character animations just make him look very kind of like jovial but also slick at the same time again i'm practically describing myself (laughs) i think that a big part of this is that especially why robin hood has become such an icon of like the furry community they are largely internet-based community of people who do identify with anthropomorphic animals in more of like a lifestyle way okay and it's because this is one of the first major animations to take the anthropomorphic animals seriously, right? If you think about the history of funny animals in animation, it's all in, like, comedy cartoons. It's, it's characters like Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse, right, who live in this kind of silly comedy world that doesn't really make sense and isn't supposed to. But in Robin Hood, it's just the world. It's the real world. There's nothing comedic about it, really. Like, there's jokes, but these are actual characters living actual lives, and I think... Th- there's something about that that makes them... I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of... I know for a fact there's plenty of people who are attracted to Bugs Bunny as well, and many others, but I think there's something about the seriousness with which this movie takes its world that allows people to be attracted to these animal characters in a way that they're often not with human-esque animal characters and other animated products. I mean, the other thing that stands out to me is that this is just one of the only Disney films we've had so far where the central character, the title character, the main character of the movie is a suave male figure. Like, so many of these Disney stories are coming-of-age tales. They're, like, little kid protagonists, or it's princesses, or something else. Whereas, if you think of similar characters we've had in other films, it's O'Malley the Alley Cat from The Aristocats, it's Tramp from Lady and the Tramp, who are just these, like, cool, suave male figures, right? But both of those, uh, O'Malley and Tramp, they are not necessarily the central characters of the film or if they are they get sort of joint billing whereas robin hood is the central figure of this film and he does have charisma and he does sort of own the screen and he is a heroic character doing heroic things i think there's something that is just like there's not that many characters actually so far that fill that brief and maybe don't going forward in disney as well so just to tie this conversation in a knot uh, do you fancy maid marion do either of you <laughs> fancy maid marion I think when people talk about this film, they they often describe Robin and Maid Marian are are you know quite sexy characters. But I think they're often referred to as sexy characters because they are in love, and it's quite a it's a really sweet relationship. It's kind of weird in terms of how it's set up and and storytelling, and it's sort of like a lot of the interesting stuff with them has happened off screen. But when they arrive, 
like Robin Hood, he's fully formed. He's hand solo at the very beginning of this film, and he doesn't really sort of build. They are just in love, and it's nice to see two characters in love, uh, even if it's only for a couple of minutes. It is interesting that those examples that Ben just pointed to of kind of like suave, sexy male characters, they're also the few examples of kind of fairly well-developed relationships romantic relationships in these movies where you see that relationship grow and you see the characters interact and bicker and flirt right so we have that in aristocats we have that in league in the tramp and we have that in robin hood all animals and i'm wondering if the reason why perhaps the same luxury isn't afforded to the relationships in the movie starring adult human characters is because disney's prudishness or of the general prudishness of the times like we can't have Aurora and Prince Philip like really like flirting with each other and bantering with each other because it's too obviously overtly sexual to do that with adult animated humans but we can do that with foxes and dogs and cats it's very chaste all the human stuff is very chaste whereas with animals they kind of allow that personality and that charisma I think to to shine through in a way that people gravitate towards but we've talked a lot about our heroes and we haven't talked yet about our villains in the film. And, I mean, there are, there are actually many villains in this film. The one I most want to talk about is the least important one. <laughs> but I'm going to save him for last. So let's first talk about the fact that the Sheriff of Nottingham, who is primarily the main villain in most Robin Hood stories, is not the main villain here. The real villain here is Prince John. Confusing, we've got Little John, we've got Prince John, neither of them are just called John. Prince John is our main villain here. Like, he is the kind of conniving one who's also got a bit of that Edgar thing about him from the Aristocats, where it's like, he is a villain, but he's also not in control of things in the way that the classic Bangers era villains were. He's kind of a bit bumbling, he's got that weird, like, mummy thing where he sucks his thumb which i hated i hated every time that happened it really just did not do it for me but he is your primary villain and then you've got the sheriff of nottingham who is a slightly more just mischievous but greedy figure who's going around taking the money but he's not your central antagonist here i thought that was quite an interesting dynamic i think the reason or one of the reasons why Prince John has been elevated to the real central antagonist, whereas in a lot of adaptations it is the Sheriff of Nottingham, is that Prince John is played by a guy who was at the time probably the biggest star in the movie and who gets, I think, top billing, maybe second in this movie, in the opening credits. It's Peter Ustinov. I should know who that is, judging by the look on your face. <laughs> Peter Ustinov is one of the coolest dudes of all time, right? I mean, that sounds great, but that's not narrowing it down for me, Sam. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy, right? Legendary actor. Won multiple Oscars, okay, for Best Supporting Actor. He won Emmys. He won Grammys. He was nominated for two Tonys, so he wasn't quite an EGOT. He won Golden Globes and he won BAFTAs, right? But Pete Yusinov, star of movies like... Can't remember any. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He played Nero in a in a really big ancient Rome movie called Quo Vadis, I think it was called. And he played Poirot in a lot of movies. But forget about the movies for one second, Sam and Ben. Because this guy straddles the line, as few have ever done before, between ridiculous character actor and public intellectual, right? This guy was the president of the World Federalist Movement. He was a Chancellor of Durham University, and there is now a college named after him at Durham University. 
and he held 13 honorary doctorates from different institutions, and he was a guy who you would get on, like, serious talk shows to debate philosophical issues. Pete Usinov. But his most distinguished role is in the 1968 Disney live-action film Blackbeard's Ghost, where he plays a drunk pirate who finds himself resurrected in the modern day, and he has to coach a college track team. Oh, that is a classic <laughs> Disney live-action random setup. Please tell me that's on Disney Plus somewhere. Of course it's on Disney Plus, and it's incredible, and you should absolutely watch it. So that was a couple of years before Robin Hood was really in production, and then he got cast in this off the back of that. But to certain audiences, he was the most famous guy in this movie at the time of release. And I think that's why Prince John gets so much screen time, because it's like, we've got Peter Ustinov, guys, we've got to use him. He speaks German. He did the German dub of his own character in the movie, and the German audio track on Disney Plus is that original audio track that uses his German dialogue. Oh, that's pretty cool. Pete Usenov. <laughs> that's incredible. He's probably the most interesting character in terms of how he's animated. Like, There's a lot going on with Prince John, more so than, than I think some of the other kind of protagonists in this movie. There's so many nice touches with Prince John. I love that the crown doesn't fit. It's this amazing metaphor right from the beginning, you know, it, it falling over his face and how he has to prop it up on his ears and it sort of just precariously balances. And all he wants to do is be king, yet he can never wear that crown. Uh, that, that's beautiful. Also, he is a lion, but the scrawniest lion. And he's not fierce like we see later on how, you know, other lion characters may look. And I actually quite like the mummy thing, him sucking his thumb. And because he's just so pathetic, you know, he if anything is trauma, traumatizing him he just reverts back to his comfort state which is sucking his thumb and asking for his mummy and i've got a dirty thumb is one of the greatest <laughs> lines delivered in a disney movie a, a movie let's just say that a movie it's a wild line to end a scene on he just says i've got a dirty thumb and then the scene fades out and we're on to the next thing one of the greatest lines ever delivered in a movie by somebody with a college at one of the UK's leading universities named after him. <laughs> but, as I alluded to earlier, there is another villainous character who I want to talk about, who was easily probably my favourite thing in the film. Sam, I don't know if he's too prominent in the film to be worthy of a Disneyversity Legends status, but my god, I loved Sir Hiss, the evil snake. <laughs> Yes, I love yes, his yes. whole vibe. I love his tiny hat. I love that he wears a cape, even <laughs> though he's a snake, as if he himself has delineated where his neck ends and where his body begins, even though snakes are just <laughs> one long tube. And he's just a great vibe. I loved Sir Hiss. I love that moment where he sort of sulks and he makes elbows from his own coils and rests his head on those coils. Big fan of Sir Hiss. Should have been the central thing in the film. So Sir Hiss... Definitely, I think, eligible for Disneyversity legendhood for our Hall of Fame of partially forgotten Disney characters. I do have another character from this movie who I want to nominate <laughs> later on, and I'm not sure if... Well, I don't know, we haven't really decided the rules if we can have two characters from the same and movie. And there is another character who I immediately pegged as your pick for Disneyversity legends. Let's just get to it now, because we're going to talk about this sequence in a minute, but... As soon as I saw the crocodile who's in charge of the golden arrow at the archery <laughs> sequence, immediately my notes here say Sam's favourite little hat with a feather in it. <laughs> 
he is my favorite of the kind of tertiary characters in this film. He's incredible. Oh my god, yeah, I did write that down. He has the voice of Candy Candido, the incredibly gravelly guy who played the chief in Peter Pan. What a voice that dude has. Big fan of the crocodile. He wasn't even who I was thinking of, but now that you've said that, <laughs> man, now, we've introduced the Disney versity legend category, and it, already we've got a movie where we've got potentially three contenders. Three? I don't know if we can have them all. Yeah, I'm, I've got one more person in this movie who I love. I did write down that I loved the, the okay. crocodile, but it wasn't who I was thinking right. of. We'll, we might get to them in a minute. But I'm thinking possibly Sir Hiss might be disqualified because he's directly responsible for the Third Crusade in this movie and the deaths of thousands in the Middle East. Yeah, but Sam, <laughs> did you see his little cape? <laughs> but he, he hypnotised King Richard and convinced him to go on a crusade so that Prince John could take over the throne. That's the horrible thing to do. There are more bodies on Sir Hiss's heads than any Disney character. They're actually on his shoulders, but they're shoulders that he's made for himself out of his own coils. <laughs> Since we've brought up the crocodile with the golden arrow, let's talk about the archery competition. This film has a weird structure, right? Because it starts by introducing you to the characters with a couple of nice songs, and then it just like meanders around for a bit, setting up Robin Hood stuff of the villains and stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Then it's like our central set piece is going to be this archery competition. And then after that, it's just like, let's have a couple of songs and then let's do the end Three bit. songs, in fact. Uh, <laughs> so the, the meat in the middle of the film is this archery competition set piece, which is a chance for Robin Hood to look cool, for there to be another sort of heist, effectively, and to get our hero and villain in the same place. But I had a lot of fun with this sequence. I thought it was great. I thought it had a real... On the one hand, it still has that laid-back energy, which I think you feel through the whole of this film, but also it has a nice sense of pace to it, an escalation and sort of cartoony fun to it. What did you guys make of the sequence? Well, so Robin Hood dresses up as a bird in this, and here's my hot take... I think he's sexier as a bird. There's Whoa, something about that that bird costume with the big beak and the little accent, the little cockney accent that he puts on. He does it more for me as a bird than he does as a fox. <laughs> I'll pass it off to you, Sam. What do you think of the sequence? Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of attractiveness, I no, I, I love the bird costume. I mean, what I like about this, um, it reminds me of Blackadder a lot, where people might wear... Uh, very basic costume and, and they make a big feature of it like don't worry it's me um wink wink nudge nudge and and robin's costumes are like so obvious that it's he's not a bird <laughs> his legs are sticks and he's wearing like big wellington boots wearing a dirty mac and a big hat but i love it i love later on his best costume is putting a sock on his nose to become a vulture beautiful work there the archery scene is quite tense though like they really build up you know how much presence there is from prince john's soldiers there how much is at risk uh for robin to basically go and show off for this you're like robin what are you doing pal this isn't going to help anybody and and there's lots at stake and i like that they build on the promise of Sir Hiss from the beginning of the film during the, the early heist where he totally sees what's going on, um, whereas Prince John can easily be fooled. And during this, Sir uh, Hiss mobilizes himself as a helicopter yes. um, with a little propeller with a sound effect on his tail when he's wearing a balloon um, to, to sort of hover around. And I love that they can really embrace the cartoon 
uh, nature with with that character. Uh, but yeah, this this scene is a romp and one of cinema's greatest archery scenes, I would say. Oh man! Oh, is that a long list? <laughs> Everything uh, Hawkeye does, I suppose. Yeah, all of the other Robin Hoods. Better than that. Better than the Hunger Games that had some archery in. Oh, yeah. And and all of the Hawkeye appearances. Yes. That specialist move where he fires one arrow way up in the air because he's, he's tripped up or whatever and then he fires another arrow to dink that first arrow into mm. the bullseye that is a very cool move this sequence though also highlights my other potential pick for Disney Versity Legend which is Lady Cluck we've <laughs> not even mentioned yes. Lady Cluck she is incredible so she's played by Carol Shelley who played one of the geese in Aristocats and Maid Marian is played by Monica Evans who played the other and they both came up together in The Odd Couple where they played sisters in that but this relationship is very different to their relationship in Aristocats. Lady Cluck is so cool. She might be the best female Disney character at this point. She is so like self-possessed. She doesn't care about anything that's going on. She's she doesn't have there's versions of this where she was gonna have a romantic interest in Alan Adele in like some of the early drafts. She doesn't care about any men. She just cares about hurting people often. <laughs> She's a brute man. She's like plowing through all those guards in this scene like a quarterback I think like the person in American football whose job it is to plow through dudes she's so strong and powerful and, and boisterous and angry and funny and Scottish I like Lady Cluck man yeah <laughs> she's my nominee I don't know maybe this is a lot of pressure but maybe we should get Sam to decide Ooh, <laughs> maybe we'll save that for later right you give you some time to stew okay. on this so you've got right. Sir Hiss we've got the crocodile in charge of the golden arrow and we've got lady cluck i really enjoyed lady cluck as well she's just a big badass chicken lady and that moment where she has that yeah sort of american football charge against the rhino guards there was a really interesting shot as well where it was almost video game like where the the sort of camera effectively is behind her as she's charging forwards and the rhinos are coming at her as she's kind of running from left to right panning in in the frame that struck me as a really interesting stylistic moment as well but that just centers her she gets this really cool action moment and there is an element of comedy in it as there is with all of the action here it's not just for her but she gets like a legitimate cool action sequence i thought that was great my only question was she has like a pair of pants underneath her feathers she like sort of pulls her pants up i i didn't that's like the moment in Cats when uh, Rebel Wilson unzips <laughs> her own skin and she's got clothes underneath. She's still a lady, Ben. Very true. <laughs> the costume rules in this film are, are quite confusing because a lot of characters, which is classic Disney, I suppose, are not wearing trousers, but some of them are wearing trousers or dresses or skirts. And what's the deal there? Are you allowed in this universe to walk around with no pants on? Or how do you decide what's right? I wouldn't know what clothes to put on in the morning. <laughs> This is the real reason why Robin Hood is wanted. It's for public indecency, <laughs> not for stealing from the rich. Yeah, I just think there's so many great moments in this archery sequence. Like, the actual archery moments are really fun, and there's some nice tension. And then it ends up in this big old sword fight. Robin proposes to Marion in the middle of the melee. This is, I think, where you see a lot of the Western influences. Uh, the way that the music kicks in has this really kind of Western twang to it. There's a pie fight in there. There's a great Phil Harris moment where little John, they're kind of all charging around in the in the tent, and you go, hey, who's driving this flying umbrella? Uh, it was a really, really great line. 
And I think something with the sequence rate that maybe, Sam, we're only two episodes into the Dark Age, into the Bangover, and we were talking about, is there like a directorial stamp from Wolfgang Reitherman? And I have an early theory of what that might be, right? Of what defines a Wooly Reitherman Disney film in this post-Walt era. And that is that I think, so far, between this and The Aristocats, his films are slightly less refined. They have slightly less of that kind of Walt uprightness about them, but they're kind of more fun. They're quite, like, loose, fun films that play in very familiar Disney ideas and tropes and influences, right? But the way that it plays out is in a looser, more energetic style, whereas the Walt stuff had a bit more of a sense of occasion and propriety about it. What do you think of that as an early thesis, two films in? Yeah, that definitely works. I mean, you say two films in, but if you go back, you know, he also directed, under Walt's loose supervision, films like Sword in the Stone and Jungle Book as well, and I think that definitely applies to those movies too. They're all loose, they're all episodic. He's more interested in character than story, definitely, right? And, and you do get some of the richest characters in Disney at this point in Reitherman's movies. And yeah, maybe more interested in fun. And, you know, I know we, we kind of harp on about the antics need to form part of the story, and I think sometimes Reitherman achieves that and sometimes he doesn't, but I think this is a great example of that, where the comedy is part of a climactic action sequence, which is part of a broader narrative. The film as a whole is still very episodic. It does feel like arguably a few episodes of a TV show stitched together, but um, we are having fun. Yeah, I agree with that. Is this the funniest Disney film so far? Very possibly. Because there's actual jokes, I think, in this film. I mean... I don't know when the last time you watched The Aristocats was, but that has a guy called Uncle Waldo. (laughs) (laughs) Already in the Disneyversity Legends canon. (laughs) He is an inebriated goose, and I am cracking up just thinking of him. It's in the top two, perhaps, funniest Disney films. So in terms of this episodic narrative, we leave the archery sequence, we've had the proposal between Robin and Marion, and then we invest in some character time with them. We get, again, a classic sort of Disney trope coming through, which is that you get your romantic heroes together and they have a lovely moonlit walk. It's backed, as ever, by a lovely musical number, and it reminded me a lot of similar sequences that we've seen in in Cinderella, in Lady and the Tramp. Even the forest sequence from Sleeping Beauty has a very different tone to it, but it's like, let's get our male hero and our female hero together in the woods, get a bit of romance going. And even though I thought the Robin Hood version of that was maybe less technically impressive or ambitious, there was such a warmth to it. I think there's a real warmth to this whole film. And I thought there were some really lovely moments in this sort of romance scene, effectively, between Robin and Marion. Yeah, I thought it was very reminiscent of Can You Feel the Love Tonight, actually, from The Lion King. These two kind of animal characters casting glances at each other across the colour palette and, like, the forest setting is really reminiscent of that. That song, of course, won an Oscar, and this song was nominated for an Oscar, despite the fact that I watched it yesterday and I cannot recall it. I have to say, it's not coming to mind for me right now, but as I was watching it, I was like, this is a nice companion piece. It's like, you picked that over, Oodle Lally? You picked (laughs) that over, the phony 
King of England? Not not for me, I don't think. That's the problem, isn't it? It's um in terms of memory, well, there's a couple of bangers right after this. Um which uh I think this one gets the yeah, I guess you put the serious song forward for awards contention. And uh what I do like about the song is it was recycled in the Wes Anderson Fantastic Mr. Fox film. Uh, and they have a very similar scene where Mr. Fox and Mrs. Fox are talking in front of a waterfall, which is a nice homage to it. So yeah, the the, the Fox fans uh, remembered the song if no one else does. <laughs> in Robin Hood that was one of the moments that I loved there's a really lovely scene transition or or shot transition I should say where it's a real close-up of Marion's face and then it fades into the waterfall and I just I thought that was actually quite visually striking considering we're talking about these films maybe not quite being as visually out there or as as impressive as the bangers era stuff I thought actually that was a really striking moment that fade for a film which I think plays as a comedy they're really going for a really deep sense of love and admiration in the scene. And you do get those point of view shots of each of the characters' faces, which, again, is not a common shot in a Disney animation. And during those shots, I would say Robin looks pretty sexy. That's the one that you see the most on Twitter from people who fancy Robin Hood. Is that that close up during that song? <laughs> I do agree with you in that this song is immediately overshadowed by the ones that follow because it's like we're back in the package era, we just suddenly stop everything and have a hoedown. That used to happen quite a lot in in some of the earlier Disney films we discussed. I have to say, the Phil Harris song that we get here is fun, but way less memorable even than Bare Necessities or the O'Malley song. But it's interesting because, again, I wrote down here it's got a real yeehaw vibe. It's got like a western twang that then turns jazzy, as Disney songs often do. Whereas in my mind, not knowing the history behind this, I was like, why isn't this a medieval English love song? But again, a fun sequence. It just adds to this whole hodgepodge of all the different influences that make this film what it is. Well, it's very similar to an old English folk song, actually, called The Bastard King of England. Not that old, I think it's from the 1800s. But um, if it is indeed based on it, they've changed a lot of the lyrics, and it does have a lot of similarities. Um, I can read you first verse and chorus, maybe, and so this is verbatim. Or the minstrels sing of an English king of many long years ago, who ruled his land with an iron hand though his mind was weak and low he loved to shag the royal stag and roam the royal wood but better yet to lie in bed and pull the royal pud is that real you can use your imagination as to what the royal pud <laughs> oh my god is. um he was wild and woolly and full of fleas and his terrible tool hung down to his knees god bless the bastard king of england <laughs> the, 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 these aren't the lyrics they used Talk of- in <laughs> That's from like the, the, the 1800s, I think, the wow. late 1800s. Talk about discarded. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is unexpected. So presumably they changed the lyrics for the Disney version. Of course they changed the lyrics, you've just watched the film. You would have noticed if they hadn't changed the lyrics. It probably would have made its way into my notes. Do you know what, I was more distracted by the uh, the next song that came, the Not in Nottingham song. Not in Nottingham, that's Yeah, great. it has like a it's really, really like, lovely and like tender and yeah, very memorable. I thought it had an almost like Beatles-y feel to it. It's like a mix between that like folky blues but with a bit of a European twang. I was like, this could have come off Rubber Soul. That's pure Roger Miller, baby. I mean, the film flip-flops between, you know, like slapstick humour, a bit of farce, some fun dressing up, really tender love scene, to 
absolute bleak um you know ken loach style social realism <laughs> grim up north sort of yeah, stuff nottingham does not look like a nice place based on this film nottingham has seen better days i can confirm that nottingham doesn't look like that now <laughs> it looks a lot better than that these days <laughs> that stuff with the sheriff of nottingham coming to lock up friar tuck and like getting into a scrap with him in the rain and and that is horrible man we haven't really talked about the sheriff of nottingham he might be the most dislikable Disney characters that they've ever done. The voice performance is great from Pat Buttram returning from the Aristocats, but the things that this guy does, it's just like really brutal, real-world evil, right? Like Robin, the poor little mice, oh, and when he steals the money that what he believes is like a blind Robin Hood has been collecting and stuff, he's an absolute rotter, and that stuff with Friar Tuck is so bleak. But those moments do give us one of the greatest parts of the legacy of this film, which is the meme of blind Robin Hood with his little tin, uh, which is an image I use with surprising regularity these days. One thing before we head into discussing the final part of this film, Sam, I think it was part of the Not in Nottingham sequence. There is a shot of a bell ringing in a tower, and the bell looked really strange. It looked kind of 3D. And I was like, what have they done there? It just stood out. Was it live action footage? Was it a weird rotoscoping thing? What was that? Yeah, that was a live action bell. They just filmed a bell. There's animated bells later in the movie. I'm not sure why they thought that would be too hard to animate, but I guess it's the the depth thing, the swinging towards the camera thing that they thought was going to be tricky. So filmed a bell and kind of photocopied it in there. A lot of the stories about the film were about how they were rushed. And I wonder if they were like just trying to cut corners. Like, you can draw yeah. some bells. Whilst you're drawing a bell, we'll film a bell and then we'll meet in the middle <laughs> and all the bells will be done, right? <laughs> so I have to say, I think in terms of action finales in Disney movies, this is not the best one they've done. But there was something that really struck me about it, right? When the film really kicks into life, the jig is up, when Robin Hood's been discovered, he could have got away with this whole thing if he didn't try and get those last bags of money that were in Prince John's bed. He was going too far there. He already had all the bags of money on on the pulley system, which is a really kind of iconic moment from this film as well. It really jumped out at me from my childhood, the, the sight of all those bags of money leaving the window. But when the film kicks back into life, the music that accompanies it is this really like funky action music. And at this point, we're into the 70s. It's 73. We've had a lot of Disney movies that have played with jazz. But this felt like the first one that brought in a bit of music that felt even more contemporary than that. Yeah, it sounded to me like a 70s cop show, although I say that having not seen any 70s cop shows and only seen parodies of 70s cop shows. So this sounds like a parody of a 70s cop show. I don't know if those kinds of cop shows developed maybe even later in the 1970s and this prefigured it, but that's what it sounded like to me. Again, like the country music, it's another aspect of this that's so anachronistic and it's drawn connections between other forms of media and the story that they're trying to tell. It's trying to, they try to avoid what people already know about westerns or about cop shows to basically rob that tone and give it to the movie Robin Hood. There's a lot of setup, isn't there? There's a, it's, it's very slowly, slowly, sort of gingerly sneaking into the castle. Um, Robin disguises himself as a vulture with a sock on his nose. That's quite fun. There's lots of fun costume changeovers and and, and messing around. I love the the vulture. Um, I, I can't remember if it's Nutsy or the other one, Trigger, who shouts, you know, all's well, one o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah, it's, as soon as the tension is broken, just lots of running around like Benny Hill. 
like literally left plane, right plane, and you know all reality kind of goes out the window. Which again, it's that cartoony sort of vibe, I guess. It's good for the good for the kids. My favorite part of this finale was learning that Sir Hiss has his own long bed at the bottom oh, yeah. of Prince John's <laughs> bed. He was all tucked up there. He looked perfectly innocent. Doesn't care that he's caused the death of millions in the Crusades. It's fine. You get some cool Robin Hood moments here as well. There's that bit where he takes out three baddies with one arrow. And I have to say, I do like the escalation of this sequence. The fact that it, it ramps up in intensity. By the end, the castle is in flames. Robin Hood is chased up onto the roof. It goes out with a bang, I'd say. And after we have our action finale, we get a nice little coda on the story. So Robin and Marion get married. The sheriff and, and all of that, like even Sir Hiss, are forced to work as prisoners. And King Richard returns an absolute bulked up line i think you don't even really realize how scrawny prince john is until you see king richard what is this some kind of lion king he looked like the beast from beauty and the beast to me he also looks a lot like the um lion king from bedknobs and broomsticks which was being produced concurrently with this as well uh, might be another one of those crazy woolly ritherman homages <laughs> You guys need a Lion King, you say? <laughs> Just the guy for you. Is it? Is it Peter Ustinov doing the voice of King Richard as well? It is indeed, yeah. What That's... a talented guy! It's almost the same voice, but still. <laughs> it's a little bit deeper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I should point out, though, unfortunately, May Marion, totally absent from the third act of this movie, uh, doesn't really say anything at the end, much like a lot of those older Disney princesses as well, feels a bit like a prize to be won. And it's sad because in a lot of adaptations, even earlier adaptations than this, even the earlier Disney adaptation, we have a much more active like sort of tomboyish Maid Marian character who becomes almost one of the Merry Men herself in various adaptations. And here she is not a damsel in distress, really, but very much a, a damsel. She's totally absent, isn't she? It's, it's really odd. My memory, my childhood memory was, oh, she's also in the castle. Robin goes to save her. But he doesn't. She just appears at the end. She's off screen for 25 minutes and then pops up. I wonder if there was anything that was sort of deleted or, or cut out maybe where uh, it fleshed out <laughs> her absence. Well... Before we sign off, I think it's time to invoke the Disneyversity Legends, what, fanfare, klaxon? What are we doing? <laughs> Something like that. And the time has come. Sam, you've got to pick who our Disneyversity Legends pick from this film is. So we're thinking obscure characters who are just the real MVP in the sense of Bill the Lizard from Alice in Wonderland, Cosplay Owl from Sleeping Beauty. And yeah, who who are you picking? Are you picking Sir Hiss? Are you picking Lady Cluck or are you going to pick, I don't even know if it's got a name, the crocodile with the golden arrow? <laughs> I like that the crocodile with the golden arrow doesn't have a name. And I like also that they animated that crocodile only doing the axe swing. And they use that same animation about three times in the <laughs> finale where it's all going crazy. And in the opening titles, again, they reuse so much of the, op- the finale in the opening titles. Can I put forward a fourth Disney? Oh my <laughs> God, here we go. <laughs> because I think you would agree with me that toby the turtle the <laughs> rabbit kid mate is an absolute oh my god. ledge you are right oh my god you're right and his dad his dad is in the archery competition he's like that's my dad oh my god you're right there's so many of them in this goddamn he movie. was the character that i related to the most right i look a bit like a turtle i wear glasses i was a scrawny slightly nervous kid from nottingham that would be my part in this story if i was involved in this i would be that little turtle kid he's got that scene at the beginning where he doesn't want the 
the to shoot the arrow through the castle and doesn't want to go and see Maid Marian. And and when he he does see her, he goes full dopey and he's like, oh shucks, um, which is lovely. But it's in the uh, when they're locked up in prison, the water's dripping into his shell. So sad. I I love Toby the turtle. <laughs> well, maybe what we do then, if we can't pick between these four because there are so many, we now have a film where we would say canonically that there are four Disney versus Legends in one movie. So now <laughs> it's really become about are there going to be any other films going forward that have more than four outright Disney versus Legends <laughs> in one film? And if not, all okay. four of these guys go on the list. Should we say that? <laughs> all right, yeah, we need to start taking the leaderboard. <laughs> oh man, I love this feature. <laughs> So that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the weird, creepy stuff that they left out. So there are many tellings of Robin Hood, and to my knowledge, they're all fairly wholesome. This is always like a folk hero adventure story. But Sam, was there some darker stuff in there? Are there some things that they didn't bring into the Disney film? I mean, that thing about them all being wholesome, you know you know that's not going <laughs> to be we've barely had anything so far that's been fully not weird so the idea of robin hood being a story for children only really came about in like the 1800s when it was being compiled for children's books in their original kind of tellings as oral tales as written ballads etc all the way back to the middle ages obviously some of these stories have had a more violent bent to them robin hood used to be a violent guy man there's this ballad called robin hood and the monk where He's just, like, beheading people. Some of his mates, like, little John kills a monk because he tattletailed on Robin Hood. And then another character who doesn't make it into the movie called Mulch the Miller's Son, he kills a little kid because he's worried the kid's going to tell on them. So, yeah, pretty violent. real snitches get stitches vibe. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) A lot of characters have been omitted. So the Merry Men as you pointed out earlier, gone. And that's apparently because Ryderman wanted it to be a buddy western, like Butch and Sundance. So we're going to have Robin Hood and Little John run through the forest. They're our lads. So we'll lose Much the Miller's Son. We'll lose Will Scarlet. All these classic characters. We'll lose uh, Guy of Gisborne, who's sort of a henchman for the Sheriff of Nottingham. He's the one who gets his head chopped off, I think. But we also lose a lot of the slightly less savoury Robin Hood stories. I've just got a couple. There's one called Robin Hood's Delight, which is a great title. Robin Hood's Delight, where (laughs) Robin Hood, uncharacteristically, although actually this did tend to happen quite a lot in some of the ballads, he gets jumped by some thugs and they beat his arse, right? Robin Hood cannot handle it. And what he always does when he's getting kicked in, when he's getting like beaten by a bunch of guys... He toots on his horn and the Merry Men jump out from like seemingly nowhere. The, the Merry Men turn up instantly whenever they hear his horn to, to help him out. But this time around, in Robin Hood's delight, these guys are wise to his tricks. He's like, oh, can you just before you kill me, let me toot my horn one last time? And they're like, no, not happening. We know what you're about, Robin Hood. We know your horn trick. So he says, all right, okay. Why don't you guys and me, why don't we go to the pub? And I'll buy you all a pint, and we'll just call it a day. Go to the Winchester, have a pint, and wait for this all to blow over. (laughs) And that's the end of the story. Oh. Robin Hood's delight. (laughs) (laughs) Robin Hood's delight was pints. (laughs) So he's just like, instead of killing me, let's go and have a bev. And that was it. That's amazing. And then when they were hung over the next day, they watched Robin Hood together. (laughs) (laughs) So... 
that's like, obviously, that's a short one, okay? That's a little throwaway mini-episode, right? One of the earliest substantial, like, really long Robin Hood stories from 1492 is called A Guest of Robin Hood. And because it's the Middle Ages, all of those words are spelled wrong. They hadn't quite figured out words yet. So, A Guest of Robin Hood. And... A lot of the classic Robin Hood stories come from here, so the archery contest is in this story, for example. But it has a framing device which does not often make it into adaptations. Or not a framing device, more of a structural conceit, whereby (laughs) Robin Hood, in this story, refuses to eat unless he has a guest, okay? And the Merry Men don't count. So Robin Hood, he's not going to eat anything, he's not going to eat his dinner, until someone comes to see him, until he gets a guest, right? So the Merry Men are like, Robin, you're wasting away, son. All right, you are looking frail, man. Have some foods, have some vegetables or beef or whatever the hell they used to eat, right? And he says, no, not until I've got a guest. So periodically, right, on multiple occasions... The Merry Men just have to go out and kidnap the first person to see and bring them to <laughs> eat dinner with Robin Hood. Otherwise, he's not going to eat anything. And that's where all of these stories spin off from. They kidnap someone, bring them for dinner with Robin Hood, and then that person will kind of give Robin Hood a quest and send him on an adventure. Wow, that is just feels so arbitrary. It feels like uh, video game logic of like, this person's going to give you a quest, but we need to kidnap them first and have dinner. Otherwise, Robin Hood doesn't eat. It feels like something Kanye West would do. <laughs> <laughs> you know like it's just one of those people with so much like power and influence that whatever he says you've just got to accommodate them he's like i'm not gonna eat anything until i'm not gonna make my album until i can live in a football stadium for a month and work on it it's the same thing the same impulse this story also includes the death of robin hood does anyone know how robin hood dies the disney film is my bible for robin hood so this is yeah. on you <laughs> Robin Hood is feeling a bit unwell, so he goes to the Priory for, obviously, a very common treatment for illness back in the day, bleeding, alright? We're just gonna bleed you. We're just gonna let you bleed until you've bled all the bad stuff out, right? Unfortunately, and this must have happened all the time. This must have been really common. Unfortunately, the Prioress, in this case, her boyfriend had a grudge against Robin Hood, so he said, you know what? Just, um, when you start bleeding this guy, well, how about you don't stop? What? So, this prioress, this sort of medieval nurse, bled him of all of his blood. Oh my god, so he doesn't die in battle, he doesn't die stealing money, he dies on a medical table, just slowly bleeding. To- That's the bleakest thing I've ever heard, Sam. That might, that is maybe <laughs> up there with baby Peter Pan, what, stealing babies in Kensington Gardens, or whatever that was. That, that is, that is very, very dark. There you go. Robin Hood's delight. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Delightful indeed. Let's talk reviews then. So people liked The Aristocats, people liked The Jungle Book, Disney are on a bit of a streak, but did the critics enjoy Robin Hood? Mixed bag, as you might imagine. Well, I I say that, so... One of the things about Robin Hood is that everyone today loves it. We've talked about this in the past. I don't think we've really talked about it today. It's a lot of people's favourite movie. And a lot of that, as I've said in the past, comes from... It's what you had. It's what was available on VHS when you were a kid. And Robin Hood was a lot more readily available than something like Snow White or Pinocchio or Peter Pan, right? But it's always really split critics down the middle. It's had some really negative responses. So on the one hand, from contemporary reviews, we've got the New York Times saying, it should be a good deal of fun for toddlers whose minds have not yet shriveled into orthodoxy. (laughs) Maybe a bit of a backhanded compliment there. So he called the visual style charmingly conventional. 
Yeah. It struck me more as like a weird dunk on toddlers. They can't help it, man. Yeah, <laughs> they're, right. They're developing into human beings, goddammit. But you know, it's, and if you want to take your kids to see a Disney movie, this is this is maybe the one. Uh, the Montreal Gazette called it a comeback of sorts for the Disney people. So ever since the old maestro died, it's Walt, the cartoon features have shown distressing signs of a drop in quality. But this one made Robin Hood an excellent evening out for the whole family. So it's oh, this is the comeback. They've really put the effort in with this one. But there were just as many negative reviews. I have to defer to Gene Siskel's review. Um, mm-hmm. He says. If you think Liz Taylor in decline is depressing, okay? So, we had dunk on Liz Taylor <laughs> to start with. <laughs> if you think Liz Taylor in decline is depressing, wait till you see Walt Disney Productions play Flubberdub with the legend of Robin Hood. Flubberdub, what a word. I'm gonna, <laughs> next time I write a review in my day job, I'm going to try and sneak the word Flubberdub in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that'd be incredible. Wait till you see Andy Circus play Flubberdub with the legend of Venom. <laughs> <laughs> That's cinema, baby. I guess with, with this section, do you find a lot of professional critics who have to, for their work, see every film that comes out Often, if you are a you know older critic, a lot of uh, critics sort of get super famous in you know as they're sort of approaching midlife. Going to watch a kids' film is a weird chore, and I, I often feel that Disney films and other animated films don't get a fair crack of the whip because they're being viewed by someone who really doesn't want to be there, only that they're there for their day job, and which is fine. Everybody's opinion counts, but they're sort of going into it, you know, like Gene Siskel sounds like he is not a Disney boy <laughs> going into this movie. <laughs> no, no. He also, just a couple of other choice phrases, he said it was 80 minutes of pratfalls and nincompoop dialogue. And he said that the animation was Saturday morning TV cartoon stuff, which in the 70s, that's a major insult. <laughs> and it's like a series of flashcards. So obviously referencing the slightly cut rate animation that I think is evidently on display in this and a couple of Ratherman's films. Uh, 1.5 stars from Gene Siskel. Oof. But even in the modern day, it's the first film that we've looked at, including all the package films. It's the first film that we've looked at to have a rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes today. Wow. 54%. Oof. So obviously this is, it's going to have a lot more reviews from contemporary critics than something like, from like modern day critics, than something like Make My Music. But there are only four Disney films ever that have scored lower than that. Interesting. I, so, and they're all coming up? They're all coming up. Some of them quite soon, some of them far in the future. Interesting. Well, so it was a critically mixed response then, but what about the box office? Did it earn money for Disney? Was it a similarly big hitter to Aristocats and Jungle Book? It was. It made $9.6 million domestically, and it made $27.5 million worldwide. So if you've been keeping track, if you've been filling in your wall chart, that means it is down from Aristocats and Jungle Book domestically. These movies have been steadily declining in box office returns in America. It's not bad, but it's worse but this broke the jungle books record overall worldwide okay so jungle book 24 million worldwide robin hood 27 so they're on the up and up worldwide i guess you also need to take into account that i think more markets will be opening up worldwide over the course of the 60s and 70s disney are probably exporting their films to a lot more countries than before especially compared to the stuff that came out in the aftermath of the war but you know, can't sniff at that. We're talking about this as being the Dark Age commercially. Mm. We well, haven't hit it yet. 
I mean, around this time, the Disney films must be a, a few million dollars to make, like four, five, six million dollars. So that's like a six-fold return on investment. That's box office bonanza from cinema land. Uh, absolutely. I think people will be cheering them on here. Yeah, so any suggestion of shutting down the animation studio because it can't make money is must be long forgotten by this point. So it was a mixed critical reception, but banked a lot of money. What about our opinions? Let's start with Sam. Not Doc, Sam. What star rating would you give this film? What did you make of it overall? I think just with the lasting legacy of this film, there was a re-release. There was two re-releases of this in the 90s. One in 91 when Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out, Savvy from Disney, and a later one in the 90s. And that might be why a lot of people who've come on the show already have said this is their Mm. favorite film. It had a big 90s presence. Not a lot of films from this era did get that two releases in the 90s. Uh, For me, I think this is a very gentle film, although has some truly horrific and and traumatizing scenes, not in Nottingham and the the prison uh, stuff. But it's still, I think because it's quite zippy, when there's a sad moment, it doesn't stay on it for too long. Yeah, I love the the slapstick nature. Uh, I love how it's just kind of weird and gnarly. Like this isn't a prestige animation, which is what you know you guys have covered in the past in the uh, bangers era. But I think this celebrates the scrappiness of it all, and and I revel in that. So for me, it feels like a bit of an oddity, and I want to embrace the oddity and, and, and nurture it along. I'll always recommend people who maybe no, don't know Disney so well to check out Robin Hood because I think it's a really good time. And 83 minutes long, of course. Uh, so I don't know. For me, it's probably like on my letterbox. I think I've given this film a four out of five, but I will watch it a couple of times a year very happily, including the uh, now sacred uh, New Year's Day screening. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Come on then, Doc. What are your thoughts? It's one of those okay ones for me. Oh, I think. You're not I'm... Doc anymore. You're grumpy now. <laughs> <laughs> I've praised a lot of things, I suppose, already so far. I like the music. I like some of the music. I like the characters it's pretty funny it's another great phil harris performance it's got pity use of and no animated disney movie can say that you have to go to blackbeard's ghost to get your kicks but the episodic nature of it i find quite unfulfilling and especially the third act i find really dull what really interests me about this movie is the way that it incorporates elements of contemporary pop culture like the western and like the cop show and and like country music that is somewhat innovative for a feature animation to do in that way. There's elements of it in the Jungle Book, certainly, but I feel like this is a step towards some of the movies that really fascinate me and some of the movies that I've spent my career writing about, like Shrek and Hercules, which really play with anachronism in that way. This is an early example of that, arguably an influence on those movies. So for that, I have to probably give it points. I mean, we're probably talking three. I don't think I would go lower than three. I wouldn't go as low as Gene Siskel's 1.5, certainly. (laughs) But it's... I think it's probably on par with Aristocats. I know we'll be doing the ranking in many episodes' time of of the Dark Age, but I think at the minute it's it's on that level. For me, I'm going to go closer to Sam than I am to Doc. I think I'm going to go four stars on this film. It is a lighter Disney movie. It is a laid-back Disney movie, but I think it has a lot of charm. It has great songs it has really fun characters and it has a zippy tone i think it just has a nice sense of momentum even for a sort of slightly lesser disney movie compared to something like say the sword and the stone which is quite episodic and feels quite lightweight but i don't think it had that sense of momentum that robin hood has i think it's got a lot of charm and i really enjoyed watching this one i do think i have a bit of a soft spot for it 
I grew up in the 90s. We had this on VHS. We had to buy a second copy when we were moving to Nottingham. My mum and dad got us a copy on VHS and it got lost in the move. So we had to get a second copy because I think we all turned up at the house and they were like, let's stick the kids in front of Robin Hood and then we can do all the unpacking and stuff. And it wasn't there. It was a bit of an emergency. So this one did factor into my childhood. Uh, but I think it's an interesting film. Like you said, all the weird mix of influences that are in there is something that, until this viewing, I didn't really reflect on, and I think it has a nice, weird combination of things that has makes it a more interesting watch than you might expect. So, four stars from me. It's like the best Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would watch this on a Saturday morning happily with a big bowl of cereal. Okay, now it's time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. So Sam, sorry Doc, what is the lasting legacy of Robin Hood, in a Disney sense? In a Disney sense, very little. I mean, really, I think the greatest legacy of this movie is the Darren Bent chant, because Disney <laughs> have not really tried to spin this off. I mean, there was never even a sequel in development. Like, you know, there was with Aristocats and Dumbo, we know what those sequels were going to be. With this, I can't find anything like that. And it feels like it would lend itself quite well to a sequel. There's so many Robin Hood stories you can adapt or just take these characters off in different directions, but they never did anything. There is, gird yourselves, gentlemen, a live-action remake in production, or in development at least, and it is going to be directed by the director of Raya and the Last Dragon, Carlos Lopez Estrada. And I say live-action obviously with my fingers crossed behind my back because this will be a photorealistic CGI foxes, real life foxes in clothes <laughs> nightmare movie is what this is going to be and I cannot wait. Yeah, this sounds mad. The Carlos Lopez Estrada factor actually has me really excited because as well as doing Raya and the Last Dragon, he directed Blind Spotting. If you've not seen Blind Spotting, oh man, you should go and watch that film. It's amazing. David Diggs from the original Hamilton cast uh, is in it and it's a whole like meditation on gentrification in Oakland. It's an incredible film. But the fact that he's going to do this like live action-ish hybrid Robin Hood movie that it's still a fox but it's the Robin Hood story is wild to me. What the hell is that film going to be? You know, Davy Diggs would play a pretty good Robin Hood. Right? That is good casting. That is great. In, in Blind Spotting, there's that buddy nature, isn't there? And and actually, if you bring that to Little John and Robin Hood in, in the live action, quote unquote, movie, I would watch that. And yeah, it deals with social injustice and, you know, lots of like very, uh, you know, real life pressing issues. Uh, imagine his not in Nottingham scene. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> the gentrification of Sherwood Forest. The more we talk about this, the more it actually makes sense, and I'm talking myself into thinking that this is going to be good. And then you remember what it's going to look like. <laughs> I can't wait. How are they going to make it not cats is a yeah, big question. It's like my anticipation for the trailer for this movie is on par with Sonic the Hedgehog with cats and with now my anticipation for the trailer for the Super Mario Brothers movie. You know, where it's like, you know that everything that you need, we're going to get from that. And oh, I can't wait for the movie as well, but like, just the trailer, just a Robin Hood with the cup meme, just a smidgen, just a crumb of freaky live action Robin Hood, please, sir. So, elsewhere we've got a little bit of a Disney 
reference apparently according to the director of Zootopia Byron Howard this was a big influence on that movie and you can see that sexy anthropomorphic fox potentially sexy anthropomorphic fox at least not for me to say I like to think and I'm sure there's lots of fan fiction about this online that they exist in the same universe I'm gonna look into it and see if there is anything that precludes the fact that Zootopia is a stealth sequel to Robin Hood's because there's no reason why it couldn't be I don't think so nothing in the parks apart from some costume characters when I went to Disneyland Paris as a kid there was like Friar Tuck and Robin Hood in Frontierland, not Fantasyland, Frontierland, which I think is actually really interesting because, again, it speaks to the Western influence there. The only actual, like, Robin Hood attraction or structure I can find in any of the parks is a fast food spot in Fantasyland in Orlando, which I would pronounce Friar's Nook, but which is obviously supposed to be pronounced Friar's Nook by <laughs> someone with an actual proper accent. This sells... As Friar Tuck clearly would, hot dogs, mac and cheese, and buffalo chicken, and everything comes with a side of tater tots. In keeping with the film, you know? Yeah. He's always eating hot dogs. Anytime Friar Tuck is not off screen, assume he's eating a hot dog. To be fair, I can confirm there are hot dogs in Nottingham. I don't know if there were back then, but as of at least the 90s, hot dogs do exist in Nottingham. And that is it for this week's class. Sam, have you enjoyed your time in Disneyversity? Have you learned things? What's your experience been? I... Oh no, you were talking <laughs> to the other Sam. <laughs> I, was say, I always enjoy it, Ben. Oh, well, <laughs> it's been a real honour to drop by a class today and uh, and take some notes. I have learned a lot. I've learned a lot about the real life or, you know, the historical Robin Hood and, and how dark those stories were, how weird those stories were. But I think I've also learned a little bit about myself during this time. What does make a sexy fox? Uh <laughs> <laughs> been asking myself that question throughout this. Uh, it's been a blast. I've loved talking about. I love talking about under ninety minute films, and I can't think of two better people to talk about this under ninety minute absolute banger of a movie with on the ninety minutes or less film fest. I've always wanted someone to pick this movie. Seventy films in, nobody has. Finally, I've got to share my love of this film with probably the best people for the job. So uh, yeah, it's been a thrill, and I look forward to receiving my honorary diploma in the post. Yeah. Maybe we should make one for every guest that we have, Sam. We'll make actual little degrees and we'll send them out in tiny tubes. That's a great <laughs> idea. I should say, obviously, we'll see what happens in the edit. I'd be amazed if this comes in at under 90 minutes. This is one of our <laughs> longest episodes, surely. Yeah, this will not be part of the under 90 minute podcast festival, let alone the under 90 minute uh, film fest. But yeah, Sam, tell people where they can find your podcast because it is an absolute delight. Oh, thank you so much. I So it, wherever you're listening to this, uh, type in 90 minutes or less film fest uh, 90 with some numbers that always goes down well and if you enjoy disneyversity we've covered four disney films with some great people we've shared our guest helen o'hara uh, on an episode but we've also had chris butler the director from like a studios of paranorman and missing link uh, talking about 101 dalmatians a film that really inspired him that was fascinating uh, and alex do dr wit came on to talk about dumbo uh, which was a was a real joy and we mentioned don bluth uh, in this episode and, and we've got an upcoming episode on the secret of nim with brian herring who puppets bba in the star wars oh, films <laughs> i love brian herring oh that's amazing <laughs> oh what a dude uh, ben made the same face about brian herring as i made about the secret of nim <laughs> <laughs> you know you have dedicated listeners to that episode already sam whenever it drops 
<laughs> oh, thank you. I think because, uh, oh yeah, a lot of animations are under 90 minutes. We we do cover a lot of animations and it's always a nice thing for me because I'm such an animation fan, uh, Disney and, and, and yes, I'm afraid with some other studios also, uh, like the Bluth Studios. <laughs> well, it's been a joy having you on. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. And thank you for listening as well. Join us again for next week's seminar as we talk all things poo. No, not in that way. I mean, Winnie the Pooh will be venturing to the Hundred Acre Wood with the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which Sam assures me is just three adventures. They say many. I was spiralling about how many that might be. Three adventures of Winnie the Pooh. It's going to be like a package era sequel. But in the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on, we can pull a few strings. Literally, we have a pulley system in place to get you a few quid back from the tax man. Just as a legal note, we cannot do that. Please do not fudge your taxes in the name of this podcast. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Wait, it's goodbye from Sam Clements. (laughs) Goodbye. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's goodbye from Doc, a.k.a. Grumpy, a.k.a. Sam. Sam Summers. Oh, goodbye, guys. And it's goodbye from me, lads. Let's go and have a pint, and we'll call it Disneyversity's Delight. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs, and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram, and catch you for next week's class. Oh,